Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. I am very pleased to welcome Sujal Shah, the CEO of Simabate Therapeutics. Sujal, thanks for joining me on the show today. Matt, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm glad I could get you on because the, the liver disease space is a pretty exciting one, especially in the last few years. So I'm glad I can bring on a, a CEO to kind of talk about the space and especially about the good work you guys are doing at SEMA Bay. So I think what first might be helpful is if you can give a background on the company and maybe tell us a bit about Cella Delpar. Yeah, I'd love to be able to do that, Matt, and um, really appreciate, as I said, this opportunity to discuss the exciting work happening at SEMA Bay. I, I should remind listeners uh, that over the course of today's conversation, I may uh, be making forward-looking statements, and I'd encourage all to review risk factors related to our business as highlighted in our SEC filings. So SEMA Bay has a rich history of uh, development as well as discovery, discovery and development uh, in uh, primarily metabolic and inflammatory diseases. Uh, and in particular, the company uh, since 2015 has predominantly been focused in the area of chronic non-viral inflammatory liver diseases. And in that broader context, uh, a specific focus, as we'll talk about today in the rare autoimmune liver disease, primary biliary cholangitis, a company is based in the East Bay of San Francisco, uh, as I mentioned, development stage today, but really excited about an opportunity to potentially complete development of Celadelpar in our current global phase three registration study for patients with PVC. We're about 60 uh, full-time em employees today. And you know, you asked about Celadelpar. That is really at the core of the development opportunity within the company today where we're incredibly focused. Uh, that focus is, is really launched off of what we believe is some of the ro most robust phase two and, and even partial phase three mm -hmm. data sets uh, certainly uh, developed in the, in the setting of PVC today. Uh, Celadelpar is a, a PPAR delta agonist. Uh, PPAR delta is a nuclear receptor uh, that in fact is expressed in a number of different tissues. It's expressed in liver, muscle, uh, kidney, uh, adipose tissue, uh, and it's a nuclear receptor that really is in involved in regulating a number of metabolic processes. And there's some specific reasons we think that PPAR delta, given its expression in liver, is incredibly well uh, suited for addressing chronic inflammatory liver diseases. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, and it seems to be the, the case that you can have a pretty profound impact on, on PVC when you're able to agonize PPAR delta. So maybe it might be helpful if you can give us a context of uh, where therapeutics are at with PVC today, and then where would Celadelpar come in to kind of improve the situation for patients? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, first I'll, I'll just set up the context. You know, PVC is a rare progressive uh, and chronic uh, autoimmune liver disease, as we discussed. It's really characterized by impaired bile flow or what we call cholestasis. And, you know, this occurs because the body's own immune system attacks cells mm -hmm. in the liver that are responsible otherwise for uh, transporting bile out of the liver. So you, you ultimately have uh, a portal inflammation or inflammation of the bile ducts inside the liver. 
uh, destruction of those uh, intrahepatic bile ducts ultimately causes you know, a process and a progression from inflammation to fibrosis and eventually to cirrhosis and the need for liver transplant. Uh, I will say uh, before I get to the landscape of current treatment alternatives, a couple of things. The disease is actually marked by elevations in serum markers of cholestasis or impaired bile flow, particularly alkaline phosphatase. And we'll talk more about this marker, alkaline phosphatase, when we talk more about some of the data that we've collected in PVC. And I'll refer to it even as I talk about the landscape of treatment alternatives. Uh, other markers of cholestasis include gamma GT and even total bilirubin. But alkaline phosphatase in particular is a serum biomarker that's been associated with historical data sets uh, as it's been elevated to actually uh, result in more frequent and, and more near-term liver outcomes uh, and outcomes that progress patients to the need for potential liver transplantation. When, when you have the ability to lower alkaline phosphatase, that in fact has been correlated with improved long-term outcomes, improved uh, liver-related outcomes and transplant-free survival specifically. So again, we'll come back to that as a key marker of disease and disease progression. There are two key clinical symptoms of PBC also important to highlight. You really patients suffer from both fatigue uh, as well as puritis or, or chronic itch. You know, the fatigue is pervasive in patients with PBC. They'll often describe it, you know, not simply as feeling tired, but you know, feeling stuck in quicksand, you know, challenges with just getting out of bed or getting out of uh, their homes, really moving about their day generally. And then puritis or, or cholestatic related itch is also a key symptom of the disease that really leads to a decrease in overall quality of life. So these are mm -hmm. some of the, the challenges of, of PVC overall. You know, so a progression of potential uh, liver related outcomes towards the need for liver transplant and of course clinical symptoms of disease. You know, today there are only two drugs approved for patients with PVC. Ursodeoxycholic acid or UDCA is first line. It's a generic treatment. Uh, most patients do have a benefit where they see reductions in alkaline phosphatase using UDCA. It's not been shown to really reduce any of the clinical symptoms of the disease, but it has had you know, significant impact on reducing the risk of disease progression for a significant number of patients. There's still somewhere around 40% of patients, however, whose alkaline phosphatase, even after taking UDCA for six months to a year, perhaps even longer, uh, remains elevated. And mm -hmm. therefore, these are patients with a higher uh, risk of, of disease progression. And so the only second line drug approved for PBC patients today uh, is a drug called abeticolic acid or Ocalava. This is an FXR agonist, uh, and uh, this drug was approved in 2016. It works to actually inhibit bile acid synthesis, so it also does reduce alkaline phosphatase, and it's typically given to patients on top of UDCA. For those that don't tolerate UDCA, it can be given as monotherapy. And what you see with uh, Ocalava, at least if you look at their phase three published data, is that just about, just under 50% of patients have what's deemed as an adequate response, where they met the primary endpoint, again, related to reductions in alkaline phosphatase. Uh, so there are patients that have that benefit, but there are still almost 50% of patients that don't have an adequate benefit based on that primary endpoint. The other challenge with the betacolic acid is it can cause or worsen puritis. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so you have a drug here that uh, does give some patients benefit on liver outcomes longer term uh, or believed to based on the reductions in alkaline phosphatase, but can actually cause or worsen one of the two key clinical symptoms of disease. So when we think about really the unmet needs in PBC, we think one, there's a need for treatment alternatives that actually get a greater proportion of patients to have an adequate response. We actually believe there's a need for treatment alternatives that actually can normalize the biochemical markers of disease. And so I'll come back to those two things specifically when we talk more about our data sets, but that's one key unmet need in the setting of PVC. And the other uh, is for treatment alternatives that of course can address some of these key clinical symptoms of disease and particularly mm -hmm. uh, potential therapeutics that can reduce itch or reduce puritis. Those are two key unmet needs. I, I would say a, a third is, is always uh, looking for treatment alternatives with a better overall safety profile for patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this is probably a good time to talk about the, the phase three enhanced data that, that your group has presented. And not only are you seeing good efficacy there, but yeah, the effects on puritis were, were very impactful for patients. And also I noticed reductions in LDLC and some other markers that you know other like Ocalava might actually exacerbate. So I thought that that was pretty interesting and uh, something, yeah, that would fulfill an unmet need. So I guess from your perspective, um, what are the key takeaways from your the enhanced phase three data set that was presented? But before we get to Sujal's answer, I wanted to thank our sponsors, which is Info Pathways, and they are leaders in biotech IT. Many biotech startups don't think that they have the time or money to protect their data. Without a dedicated IT team, data management becomes everyone's problem. Scientists find themselves redoing work and carrying out tasks outside of their expertise. Management finds themselves struggling to find funding and meet regulatory requirements. Don't let your company set itself up for failure. InfoPathways provides data management, cybersecurity, and technology compliance services for life science firms of any size. InfoPathways specializes in clean rooms, vivariums, GMP or GLP compliant facilities as well as BSL 1 through 4. No environment or regulation is too complex for InfoPathways. For more information, go to InfoPathways.com or call 410-751-9929 to learn more. And I want to thank them so much for being a sponsor for the show. It really does help out. The company's name is InfoPathways, and they are the leaders in biotech. Please check them out, everybody, at InfoPathways.com. And maybe what I can do, Matt, if you don't mind, because you did ask me specifically about Celadelpar. I touched upon Celadelpar as a potent selective PPAR delta agonist, but I can perhaps touch a, a bit more around this mechanism and what makes it unique and then really tie it into what we're seeing in the clinic. Uh, so as I mentioned, PPAR delta is a master regulator of a, of a host of metabolic processes in a number of tissues. What really makes it exciting in the liver is PPAR delta happens to be expressed in all four major cell types of the liver. Hmm. So it's expressed in cholangiocytes, uh, which line the epithelial, which are the epithelial lining cells of the bile ducts in the liver, where it affects effectively cholesterol transport and may in fact uh, therefore affect bile composition. Hmm. It's also expressed in hepatocytes. Those are the main workhorse cell type of the liver. Uh, much of the liver is made up of hepatocytes and here, in particular, it drives lipid metabolism and inhibits uh, cholesterol and bile acid mm. synthesis. And so you talk a little bit about the effects we've seen on reducing LDL cholesterol, 
That's an opposite effect of what you see with FXR agonists like Ocalava based on this mechanism. And so we see these benefits given these effects on driving uh, fatty acid oxidation, lipid metabolism in hepatocytes, as well as inhibiting bile acid synthesis. The latter, very important in a disease like PBC where bile acids build up in the liver and ultimately cause inflammation, fibrosis, and, and eventually a progression to cirrhosis. And finally, you know, two other key cell types in the liver are the Cooper cells or the macrophage cell type in the liver. Mm -hmm. And here, PPAR delta agonism is known to be anti-inflammatory. And then finally, in stellate cells, which are the cells that are responsible for collagen synthesis. And uh, we know that PPAR delta activation agon agonism, in fact, uh, inhibits stellate cell activation. And we, it's known to be an anti-fibrotic uh, given this mechanism. So if I bring that all back to some of the data we're seeing in PVC and why we think Celadelpar is such an exciting uh, potential treatment alternative for patients, you know, we really do see this pluripotent effect uh, in PVC, you know, given this expression of Celadelpar across these variety uh, of cell types in the liver. You know, first of all, we see this, this strong anticholostatic effect. We see reductions, as I mentioned, in the marker of cholestasis alkaline phosphatase. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we're seeing in particular is when we look at patient populations that are comparable to the population studied uh, for Ocalava's phase mm -hmm. three, and I'll have to caveat, I'm gonna give you some comparisons here that are not from head-to-head -head data, sure. uh, but our phase uh, three, early phase three data as well as versus theirs, as opposed to getting only about 50% of patients to meet the primary endpoint, in our enhanced study, at just three months of treatment, we're actually able to see almost 80%, a little over 78% of patients meet the primary endpoint of achieving an alkaline phosphatase drop below 1.67 times the upper limit of normal with at least a 15% drop and normal bilirubin. Now, this is the primary endpoint that regulators have accepted for subpart H accelerated approval in PBC, and that almost 80% is compared to about 12.5% in placebo. So highly statistically significant. And here you can get a sense of uh, a, a greater proportion of patients actually meeting this endpoint than what we've seen with other uh, data sets. And so uh, that's very promising, I think, mm -hmm. for patients. What's also embedded in this anticholostatic effect and reduction in alkaline phosphatase, in fact, is in our phase three, as well as our phase two study that included north of 100 patients out to a year of treatment, we're seeing almost 30% of these patients have a normalization in their alkaline phosphatase. Mm -hmm. So not just dropping below 1.67 times the upper limit of normal, but actually normalizing their alkphos. And based on data from the global PBC study group, it is true that lower is better. It's a log linear relationship with bringing alkaline phosphatase lower and into the normal range, and therefore seeing an, a further improvement in transplant-free survival. So it is mm -hmm. true in the case of PBC that bringing patients to normalization you know, should, we believe, be a future goal. And when you have treatment mm -hmm. alternatives potentially like a Celadelpar, you know, we think the medical community ultimately uh, may move towards normalization as the ultimate goal. And you know, here again, I think if you look at the phase two and phase three data sets published for Ocalava, you see single-digit percentages of mm -hmm. patients in those studies actually experience normalization. So that's the anticholostatic effect, very important 
and correlated with improvements in overall transplant-free survival. We also see in the enhanced data set reductions in inflammation, liver inflammation, particularly when we look at the, the enzyme ALT or mm -hmm. aminotransferase. ALT reductions, uh, and in fact, ha have been shown, uh, in fact, to actually correlate towards reductions in, in potential progression to fibrosis. So we mm -hmm. think this is also an important uh, biomarker of liver injury and inflammation mm -hmm. that we see uh, reductions in with, with Celadelpar, even though it's not part of the primary endpoint right. needed uh, for registration. And then finally, we see an antipuritic effect with Celadelpar. So uh, with the phase three data set where we compared to placebo, in just three months, patients who entered that study with moderate to severe itch had a statistically significant reduction in itch on 10 milligram Celadelpar as compared to placebo. So mm -hmm. this we think can be groundbreaking potentially for patients. As I mentioned to you before, even first line treatment although not shown to cause or worsen itch, as has been the case with Ocalava, has never really shown a benefit on itch or reduction in itch. And we think Celadelpar has this potential, certainly demonstrated in our open label phase two, and more importantly, in the placebo controlled mm -hmm. phase three study enhanced. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You, you really summed up sort of the totality of, of the real value proposition that I think definitely is going to resonate with patients. So two more follow-ups from that. I think um, one, I'm curious to know what the next steps are. I believe there's another phase three going on because the, the enhanced study was more of a truncated study due to you know some prior issues. And then um, do you have any comparison to make to um, elafibrinor, which I believe is another molecule that's currently being tested in, a, in PVC? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So you're absolutely right. Our prior phase three study was in fact a global registration phase three study that we stopped early when there was a potential suggestion of some safety signals in a completely different patient population with this same drug that we were evaluating at the time. That proved to be a false alarm. It took right. us uh, some time and we dedicated ourselves, in fact, in ensuring patient safety. So we stopped all development until we better understood what those signals were. Uh, and once again, they were, they were demonstrated to be a false alarm and the agency had lifted any clinical holds on our development. We did in fact share that prior data with the agency, given mm -hmm. the fact that we had modified the statistical analysis plan in that study to look at the endpoints at three months instead of 12 months, we maintained the integrity of that analysis. Mm -hmm. and, and as folks may know, we hit statistical significance on all three endpoints, the primary and two key secondary endpoints, which I largely alluded to. We did share this data with the agency, given this is a rare disease and a need for patients to have new treatment alternatives, with a request of approving this drug uh, for a more narrow label, but nevertheless off that truncated phase three data set. You know, here the agency obviously is committed, as they should, to overall patient safety. And in a disease like PVC, which is, which is intended to have chronic treatment, uh, the standard that's set is at least having 12-month placebo-controlled safety. So no requirement based on our prior false alarm, right. but a requirement that's been in place for all PBC drugs to actually have phase three studies out to 12 month duration. So we are in fact enrolling a new phase three study called RESPONSE. Uh, what's important about RESPONSE is it is a 12 month dosing period as Enhance had previously been intended for, but it's effectively a study in the same patient population, so the same entry criteria, 
studying the same optimal dose of Celadelpar, 10 milligrams, as we saw in, in our enhanced data set with StatSig on all of these endpoints, mm -hmm. uh, with the exact same primary and exact same two key secondary endpoints. So in many ways, uh, we like to say that it's a rinse and repeat of the mm -hmm. phase three study we had executed previously. Of course, here fully out to 12 months, there are some differences in this study, but largely again, same patient population, same dose of Celadelpar, and same exact primary and two key secondary endpoints. So we're very excited uh, to see if this data set can recapitulate and really mirror what we've seen uh, in both our 100 plus patient phase two study mm -hmm. uh, and in the enhanced study where we had randomized a total of 265 patients. So very mm -hmm. robust data sets that we uh, believe de-risk our current ongoing phase three study response. So that study continues to enroll. Uh, we hope to have that study fully enrolled in the first half of this year. Okay. And given it's a 12 month endpoint, mm -hmm. uh, that would put us in a position of having uh, top line data about 13 months after last patient in uh, sometime uh, in 2023 would be the top mm -hmm. line data readout. Now you asked a little bit about elafibrinor. Uh, it is another compound in phase three development for PBC. Mm -hmm. Elafibrinor, uh, like Celadelpar, is in fact a PPAR-specific uh, uh, compound, but it's a mm -hmm. PPAR-alpha-delta. Yeah. And in particular, uh, elafibrinor is much more potent to PPAR-alpha uh, than it is to delta. It has relatively uh, smaller amounts of delta activity as compared to Celadelpar. Mm. Um, PPAR-alpha, as folks may know, are the target of fibrates, phenofibrate, for mm. example, Tricor, as its brand name was. Uh, proved many, many years ago and used primarily to treat hypercholesterolemia and hypertriglyceridemia. So similar to Delta, you know, PPAR alphas, uh, in fact, have uh, similar actions in hepatocytes. So they drive lipid metabolism, inhibit bile acid synthesis. And so both PPAR alphas and PPAR deltas will, have, will show reductions in LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, uh, and bile acid synthesis as well. Where they really differ is the fact that alpha is only expressed really in hepatocytes in the liver. Okay. As I mentioned, delta is expressed not just in hepatocytes, mm -hmm. but also these Cooper cells or inflammatory cells, stellate cells responsible for, for fibrosis as well as cholangiocytes. And so this is where there's some differentiation. Uh, we think PPAR delta in particular is much more highly anti-inflammatory mm -hmm. than PPAR alpha. And I think if you look at some of the data sets of Celadelpar versus Elafibrinor, whether you're talking about NASH or PBC, mm -hmm. you know, this really translates when you compare the reductions in transaminases or ALT in particular with Celadelpar versus Elafibrinor. Um, now we do expect as Elafibrinor did conduct, uh, was in a, in a relatively small phase two study in PBC, about 45 patients total, uh, placebo versus two different dose groups of Elafibrinor. Uh, out to just a 12-week duration, showed promising anticholostatic effects, really didn't show meaningful anti-inflammatory effects as it didn't really have change reductions in transdaminases. It did show some promising effects on reducing puritis or itch, uh, but not using the scales that we used in our phase three study enhanced, which is the accepted scale, the numerical rating scale that the agency requires. So. I think there's, there's still a TBD on the overall effects of elafibrinor yeah. on puritis, uh, ultimately some TBD on the overall safety profile of elafibrinor in PVC right. patients simply because of the number of patients studied thus far. Okay. Uh, but, but it is a potential additional uh, treatment alternative should mm -hmm. they have positive phase three data for PVC patients. 
Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, I wasn't aware of the differential expression between the different PPARs in the in the liver. So that does kind of really set your your compound aside from from what else is out there. Um, you did mention Nash, and I'm curious because the company did have a program uh, in Nash. I wondered if there was an intention to restart that, or if the company is just going to focus on PBC and some other novel molecule that we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, you know, first of all, PBC was the first indicate, first liver indication we took Celadelpar forward in. Uh, and as that data set has continued to mature and support what we think may be a very significant opportunity in PBC, one that we believe actually has the potential to even grow the market from where it exists today mm -hmm. based on some of the profile and the data that we shared with you today. We did conduct a phase two paired liver biopsy study in patients with NASH. You know, given what I mentioned about Celadelpar's anti-inflammatory and anti-fibrotic uh, mechanism, uh, we felt it was promising, you know, to at least explore. And so we actually conducted a study that, that's been presented and, and even uh, presented at medical meetings uh, that actually shows some very promising results, both on the reduction, uh, the impact on NASH resolution without worsening of fibrosis, but in particular, you know, we saw a very meaningful 37% of patients at our highest dose experience a one point or greater improvement in fibrosis with no worsening of NASH versus 20% on placebo. Mm -hmm. Now, I think NASH, many uh, also believe will, is a multi, understand it to be a multifactorial disease that will likely require a combination treatments. And so mm -hmm. while we think Celadelpar could be a promising treatment alternative in combination with other mechanisms, yeah. You know, at present, we don't have these other mechanisms to study in the clinic, uh, always open to conversations and discussions with third parties or potential partners in that area. But at least today, we're going to remain very capital efficient mm -hmm. with our development of Celadelpar, stay focused in rare disease like PBC. We think there are other rare disease opportunities certainly we could explore at the completion of development of Celadelpar and PBC primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC, is mm -hmm. one uh, disease in particular where there are no treatment alternatives today for patients. Uh, so some of this uh, is actually where, where we're focused in, in staying in rare disease with Celadelpar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And especially, you know, all the money that GenFit put into putting into developing elafibrinor in that way, um, I think it's a smart move to, to focus on what you know is, is really a slam dunk. And it seems like you really have that in PBC for sure. Um, okay, great. So I think moving on, I'm, I'm curious because when I looked at the corporate presentation a while ago, did not see anything about blood glucose regulation. But then when I checked it out recently, um, it looks like it's an area that the company is starting to get involved in. So I wondered if you could give us some sense of the opportunity that SEMABase sees in blood sugar. Yeah, and I think you're particularly referring to MBX2982, which is a, a once daily oral GPR-119 agonist. This is a program that, in fact, was an internally discovered and developed program. <laughs> uh, and it really dates back to the company's history in metabolic disease and particularly in diabetes. So it had been a program that had been on the shelf for some period of time as we really shifted our focus at SEMA Bay to chronic inflammatory liver disease. Now, uh, we weren't going to put this program back in the clinic. However, in the last couple of years, there was some really new and exciting research around GPR-119 that I'd love to be able to share with you that really has moved the program back into the clinic today. 
you know, GPR-119 initially, as you mentioned, is, was, was being studied as a glucose regulator, particularly in type 2 diabetes, as an insulin sensitizer, a glucose regulator in type 2 diabetics. Uh, it does show some promise there, but not as compared to many other targets that came onto the scene uh, really in the early 2000s uh, that made the field very competitive and that were frankly better at lowering blood glucose in type 2 diabetics. And much of that came from the fact that GPR-119 is an incretin secretagogue. It is expressed in, in the L-cells and beta cells of the pancreas. The new research really in the last few years came out of, in fact, a collaboration between Merck and Yale. Uh, and this collaboration discovered that in addition to being expressed in beta cells and L-cells, GPR-119, in fact, is highly expressed in alpha cells of the pancreas where it's responsible for promoting the release of glucagon in low blood glucose environments. And so some of this work in animal models demonstrated that when you actually have these very blood glucose, uh, very low blood glucose environments, you see that GPR-119 can in fact uh, successfully promote the excretion of glucagon. And so today what happens, uh, particularly in patients that are on insulin treatment, type one diabetics often on insulin treatment, is they can experience episodes of hypoglycemia, where the blood sugar drops to dangerous levels. Yeah. Now today, if a patient is, is awake and recognizes they're having an episode of hypoglycemia, they can pop a sugar pill orally or have a glucagon pen injector. Um, there are glucagon pumps that are coming onto the market now. Mm -hmm. you know, but once again, those are reactive and almost treating once the episode has actually occurred. What's really potentially elegant about GPR-119 is that it only promotes glucagon release and therefore brings glucose up to more normal levels when you have low blood glucose. And so when glucose is at normal levels as a sensitizer, it doesn't actually promote glucagon release from alpha cells. So it's really a potential uh, that, that you know, we're exploring, a potential to prevent hypoglycemic episodes. There are no preventative treatments for hypoglycemia, for example, in type 1 diabetics on insulin treatment. And so while there carries significant you know, clinical risk, this is uh, early days for looking at GPR-119 in this fashion, we were approached, in fact, by the Helmsley Charitable Trust, hmm. who, was in, who were interested in fully funding a phase 2A proof oh. of pharmacology study. What this study is really intended to do is give us a sense of whether or not GPR-119 and MBX-2982 specifically uh, give us a sense of how much glucagon release actually occurs both in type 1 diabetics as well as some healthy normal volunteers mm -hmm. when you actually create a low blood glucose environment with, with a hypoglycemic right. clamp. So this will give us some pharmacology data. If that data is promising, you know, we really have one of two options. We can look to monetize uh, the value of the assets by out-licensing it to otherwise a party, you know, today more focused in metabolic disease, uh, diabetes in particular, uh, or we can ourselves carry this forward, have some conversations with regulators and experts mm -hmm. in the field, and think about a phase 2B proof-of-concept study at, at looking at the effects of MBX2982 potentially at preventing hypoglycemia uh, particularly in type 1 diabetics. So, so really exciting new science. Uh, mm. We're not having to fund the study. It's being fully yeah. funded, as I mentioned, by the Helmsley Charitable Trust. Uh, and in this relationship, we maintain all the rights to MBX 2982. Yeah. The interest 
from Helmsley, uh, notably, is, is to publish any uh, advancements and, and any potential positive data that might mm -hmm. come out of this study. Uh, and of course, you know, SEMA Bay has a rich history, as, as we talked about, in development of metabolic disease, could very well take the program forward ourselves. We'll mm -hmm. take a look at that decision once we see the phase 2A data. Right. Uh, we hope to be able to have that data by the end of this year, but again, okay. given it's being funded uh, by Helmsley and run by an external CRO. A little harder for us to point to specific timelines, but we're working very closely with these groups and are excited about this opportunity as well. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool idea, and and I think I've seen a lot of literature to suggest that alpha cells are also quite dysregulated in diabetics. So in this way, the the compounds kind of reproducing a normal uh, a normative kind of alpha cell behavior too, which is neat. Um, Absolutely. Do you know, is there like a well-established guideline from the FDA for a program like this where you're trying to um, improve glucagon secretion? You know, it's a great question. In, in, in fact, I wouldn't point to anything specifically. I think if the proof of pharmacology data is good, meaning we see, you know, really robust uh, effects on release of glucagon, I think we'd have to sit down both with experts first mm -hmm. and then regulators to carve out how a study like this would be conducted. Yeah. Uh, I think we, we recognize that what you'd really be focused on is reducing the number of hypoglycemic yeah. episodes. You know, the patient population you would likely enroll are those that have actually had a history of hypoglycemic episodes, say, in the last 6 to 12 months. Uh, but I think there's still more work for us to do around what that clinical study would look like and what the endpoint should be. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe a little too early to talk about that. Um, great. Well, that's pretty much all my questions, Sujal. Uh, is there anything extra you want to talk about in relation to the company? Yeah, I think we hit on really our core focus here. We're really excited about what 2022 may bring. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2021, we had a chance to really capitalize the company in a very strong way, raised up to $175 million of capital. Uh, that's a that's a balance sheet now that really allows us to accomplish our our objectives of completing development of Celadelpar in phase three for PBC, as well as conducting a number of NDA enabling studies. We're trying to really plan for success and try as hard as we can to bring a new treatment alternative to patients who, of course, as you know, are waiting every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and it's exciting. I'm going to be keeping a close eye because I think you you guys have a ton of potential, and uh, the next couple of years are going to be exciting. I appreciate it. Great talking to you, Matt. Yeah. Do you have any social media or anything you want to point people to? So you know, in addition to our website, we do have channels on both Twitter okay. uh, as well as LinkedIn. Uh, often putting notices about our clinical studies, about updates at medical meetings and presentations. You know, we are a company that really does believe in, in transparency, and so all of our scientific publications, as well as presentations at medical meetings, are in fact available also on our website. And so uh, if folks want to learn more, there's much more information, both through, as you mentioned, social media sites like LinkedIn, Twitter, even Facebook, okay. uh, as well as on our website itself. Okay. Great. Well, thanks, ag thanks again, Sujil. I really appreciate it. The company is Sema Bay Therapeutics, and we're going to wrap it up there. But thanks, everybody, for your attention, and we'll see you next time.